shake their hand and say, I am so glad I'm in the church. And you may be seated. Under great demand, I'm going back to Proverbs. I love Proverbs. Don't you love Proverbs? You guys read through Proverbs. You can just learn all kinds of good things about yourself. Have you ever put yourself in the in the in the scripture? I, I try to do that when I read scripture. I try to put myself there. And this is a particularly good one here. And I really like putting myself in this one and hoping and praying that I can be uh, the kind of person that I need to be when I read this. And, and it's Proverbs 15 and 10. It's going to come up the Amplified behind me here. Uh, I believe you do have that. All right. Okay, Amplified. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes God's way, and he who hates reproof will die physically, morally, and look at that. Do you wonder why I like the Amplified? Now, in Proverbs 15 and 10 in the King James, his correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. But notice how it puts the, it brings out the Hebrew words a little better here when it talks about will die physically, morally, and spiritually. A person who forsakes God's way and doesn't accept the discipline that can correct that person. Now, you prove the character of your soul when you can take correction. You prove it. And let me ask you this question. Can you take it gladly? Do you appreciate reproof? Do you appreciate the reprover? Follow me. I've seen people for years. God will put them through hardships. I, I, I don't welcome hardships. I do not in the least. But I try to find out why I'm going through what I'm going through. And sometimes it's no, for no reason in, at all, just God testing me. Sometimes it's trying to get me back on the right direction. And the worst thing that you can do is to despise the reprover when you're going through correction. Your attitude toward correction and reproof says more about your heart than any other measure. Fools and, and scorners hate correction and reproof. But both are going to die in their foolishness if this happens. This measure and warning are repeated themes of Solomon's Proverbs. In fact, you can find them in Proverbs 9 and 8, 10 and 17, 12 and 1, 13 and 18, 15, 32, and 29 and 1. You can see the same thing. Because every one of us arrived in this world. Now, when I use the term ignorant, that's not a bad term. That means to ignore something. Okay, now keep that in mind. You arrived in this world ignorant and depraved. That's just the way we all are. Our heart was dead to God and righteousness, and it was alive to rebellion and sin. You were given parents who corrected your childish foolishness, if you would, and prepared you to survive life. Folks, let me, if you have not figured this out yet, you better figure it out now. If you don't beat the fire out of your kids when they're young, they're going to get in trouble when they get older. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. Now, I know you don't like the term beat. You can say whatever you want to, but when it comes right down to it, they only respect the rod of correction, not taking away an iPod. 
That is the only thing that they're going to respect. You can tell them all day long. If you're at church and they're out and they're running between sister so-and-so's legs and knocking her down and she's 95 years old, and you say, I'm going to get you when you get home, and you get home and you forget all about that, guess what they're going to do next service? And the next service, and the next service. It's going to continue. You have got to, you have got to discipline your children. And, and, and we are disciplined. I, I know, and I, everyone, if, if, if anybody's been anything at all, they were, they were disciplined when they were a child. I was disciplined in very severe ways, intently, painfully. It hurt my emotions. It stifled my creativity. But I stand before you a better person for all that stifled creativity because I could create some pretty bad things when I was young. And so it stifled some of that. You, you know, we need parents. We need people to, to rebuke us. We need parents. We need preachers. Preachers also warn and instruct from the Word of God. That, and, and, and by doing so, you can be prepared for success. Because our hearts are evil, and, and they, do, they don't like to be corrected, and, and we resent being reproved. And you don't like to be told you're wrong and you need to change, and you want to keep your sins. We do. That's in our carnal nature. And you hate those who examine and condemn your conduct. Don't you love it when someone can ride you over the coals and tell you how bad you are? Don't you love it when someone stands up here? How many times have I had people through the years tell me, someone told you when you were preaching what I was doing? And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But God knew what was going on. And God loved that person so much that that person was reproved by the Word of God. That is a great thing about God. And these are the means by which we acquire wisdom. We do not receive wisdom unless we can be reproved. We're saved from life's pitfalls by being reproved. So then why do we resent what was ordained for the, our blessings and our salvation? And it's because we each and every one have a depraved heart that loves foolishness. That's within our carnal nature. That's the way we are. There are two rules are taught in this proverb. First, if you dislike correction, it proves you have forsaken the way of righteousness and wisdom. A man seeking knowledge and truth does not have such a rebellious spirit. Second, if you hate reproof, you will die. Ignorance will trap you, and rebellion will condemn you. Folly and sin will certainly then destroy you. So how do ignorant men obtain truth and wisdom? Obviously, they need warnings and rebuke. And, and if you resent these means for obtaining wisdom, then you're going to die in your stupidity and stubbornness. Everybody say stupidity and stubbornness. Come on, let's say it real good. Stupidity and stubbornness. Now, when you go home tonight, look in the mirror and say stupidity and stubbornness. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Or even better yet, look at your wife or husband. <laughs> Is that a bad idea? Well, your wife's not in here, so she wouldn't know what I said. Wouldn't make any difference. <laughs> Stupidity and stubbornness. I tell you what, regardless of how much Holy Ghost we have in our hearts, we can still be stupid. 
And we can still be stubborn even though it's like witchcraft. So we have to constantly be reminded of what we need to do. Thank God someone's around to remind us, huh? Thank God. So we don't want that. The snares of wicked men will deceive you if you're stubborn and you're stupid. And the various authorities in life will condemn you. And, 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 and even God, folks, at the end of all this, God will condemn you. If a person doesn't overcome this, if they're not aware of it, do you realize that, and, and I probably won't get through nearly what I want to get through tonight, I never do, but do you realize how, and, and at the end of this, I'm going to talk about how words and how we can be so, uh, so seared is the best way I can put it. It's a biblical term. To, to what we say and what we do and can be so stubborn and so stupid in some areas that we can hurt people and not realize how we're hurting them. I've, you see it all the time. You see people who, who won't, won't listen, won't, won't take any instruction whatsoever, go into situations and do exactly the opposite of what they should do or say something that's completely out of line and hurt other people terribly. And, and it's, it's, so, it's, it's so sad when we do that because I, I realize that any of us can do that. But we need to be able to learn. And sometimes the only way God can teach us is to take us through some fires of affliction. And if we don't learn by that, he takes us back into the fires of affliction. If we don't learn, he continues to do so because he loves us. Not because he hates us. Not because he gets joy out of disciplining us. He just wants us to be better. He wants us to make it to heaven. So we have to... We have to examine our hearts, and, and, and we have to be honest with ourselves. Do we love correction? Do we love reproof? Do you love the, the, the parents and the pastors who correct and reprove you? This is, this is a measure of your character and wisdom. And if you have a problem with being told you're wrong or resenting those who rebuke you, humble yourself before God and beg for mercy, because if you don't, our death is coming. It's that simple. Proverbs 15, verse 11. Proverbs 15, verse 11. Sheol, the place of the dead, and Abaddon, the abyss. Notice this. Separates. Abaddon, the abyss, that's hell. Sheol's the place of the dead, the grave. The final place of the accuser, Satan, are both, that's the abyss, or Abaddon, are both before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? Notice that. In other words, he's saying hell, God is even there. If I make my bed in hell, David said, Thou art with me in Sheol. So God knows what's going on in hell. He knows what's going on in the grave. He knows. So then he said, How much more then the hearts of the children of men? And the King James, it says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more then the hearts of the children of men? If you think, if you think the desires and the fantasies of your heart are your own, you are mistaken. How much more the hearts of men? If you think you can think whatever you want to think, that your fantasies belong to you, know this, your secret thoughts are fully known in every aspect and detail to the God of heaven. Look at Psalm 44.21. Psalm 44.21. Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. 
Your heart and mind are open books to him. No amount of deception or hypocrisy can disguise him at all. As Solomon wrote earlier, the eyes of the Lord behold everything in every place, in Proverbs 15 and 3. And he will bring every single one of them into judgment on a day not far away. Look at Revelations 2, verse 23. And I will strike her children, her proper followers dead, thoroughly exterminating them. And all the assemblies, churches shall recognize and understand that I am he who searches minds, the thoughts, the feelings, and the purposes, and the innermost or inmost hearts. And I will give to each of you the reward for what you have done as your work deserves. That's pretty good, isn't it? That lets you know how God sees us. So our, our great God of heaven has, been, has seen every thought in your heart. Why would you fear men who cannot do anything to you and not fear God, who the Bible says in Luke twelve four can, can throw both body and soul into hell? Why not? Why, why, why would you fear men? But yet we see that every day. How, how, do the, how, how do the mere thoughts of others modify your conduct? But the fearful implication of God knowing every desire of your heart does not. An angry look from his face will infinitely, infinitely exceed any angry look from men. Look at Revelations 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who was seated upon it, from whose presence and from the sight of whose face, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So the omniscient, which means the all-wise, the all-wise God knows the small details of hell and destruction. But he knows the intents of the heart even better. There is no aspect of destruction in the earth, corruption of the dead in graves, or torment of the soul in hell that the Lord of creation does not know and understand altogether. He knows you perfectly. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that God does not hear or see. He sees everything. The Bible says he sees us naked and bare. He knows exactly what we are and what we do and what we think. So how vast then is the region of the dead? How many, how many billions of people are tormented there? How many bodies are corrupting in the earth? Yet God has not lost a single cell of any one of them. Have you ever thought about how powerful that is? It doesn't make any difference how the billions of people throughout from creation up to now that are, that are in hell or that are in the grave, whatever it may be, he, not one single cell of that person has been lost to him. It doesn't matter if you've been drowned in the deepest part of the sea. He knows exactly where you are. Can you think and can you even imagine the power that's just in that? He knows everything. And yet we see people who try to hide from him. People who try to, to hide their thoughts rather than trying to get right with God. One of the, 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 the greatest problems... Now, this is Robertson 4 and 6. And you can take it or you can leave it. I really don't care. But one of the greatest problems, I think, with the church is the people that have been raised from the beginning in the church who somehow have lost sight of what this is all about. They come to church, they have their secret thoughts, their secret fantasies, their secret lives, and they pretend because they were taught from the beginning to pretend. Now, whether you like this or not, I really don't care. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go out there and backside so you can learn what the world's all about. God, help us not to do something that's stupid. But on the other side of it, I still remember what it was like to be on the other side of this thing. 
And I, 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 I am so thankful. Every bit of me is thankful that God designed one time to fill this guy with the Holy Ghost, that I was baptized in Jesus' name, that I repented of my sins, and I have the opportunity to live a holy life. And I don't want to be a pretender. God has not lost one single person. He knows them all. He'll raise them all to stand before him. Look at Acts 24:15. Acts 24:15. We broke down. Oh, there we go. Having the same hope in God which these themselves hold and look for that there is to be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. So he knows us all, and we're going to be raised to stand before him. And are you impressed, then, by his infinite knowledge? You know, when's the last time you really got impressed by God? Or have you, have you lived for God so long that he no longer impresses you with what he can do? Uh, I, I, where is, it? is Jacqueline in here somewhere? There she is. She made a statement right before church, and she said, I just don't understand why God could, could, could answer prayer the way that he does for me. You know, and, and, and I thought she still, when she said that that, that, that thought hit me. She's still impressed with the fact that God answers prayer for her. That, that, that's wonderful. I, I'm not, that's not a lack of faith. That's just, I'm impressed, God, that you, you know who I am. I'm impressed, God, with the fact that you, you know this, one, this, this poor little red-headed girl. That even though the Bible says I have no hope, you still see. I'm sorry. It's just a little joke we have. I said, the Bible says no redhead shall enter in the kingdom of heaven. So I, we know that's not true. But <clears throat> so, you know, see, she's still impressed with what God... We need to be impressed when God does something for us. And we need to allow Him to know just how impressed we really are. God, you still love me. God, you're still doing great things for me. God, I, I still hear your answering prayer. You're still doing great things in my family. You're still Jesus. You're still saving the lost. We need to be impressed. So I need to be impressed with his knowledge. He knows our heart better than we know it. And, and, and we're going to answer for every thought to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the keys, the Bible says, of death, hell, and the grave in Revelations 1.18. David once spoke of hiding in heaven. I made this statement a little earlier, hell. But he knew that God would be in both places, knowing every thought of his heart, every word in his tongue, and every movement of his body in Psalm 139, 1-13. All things... Every thought and intent of your heart are naked and open to the eyes of the Lord. Though you cannot know the wickedness of your own heart, he knows it perfectly. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is a deceitful above all things. It is exceedingly perverse and corrupt and severely mortally sick. Who can know? Now, <laughs> look at this. Uh, look at this. I, I'm going to read this again. The heart is a deceitful above all things. It is exceedingly perverse and corrupt and severely and mortally sick. And I heard a person tell me one time, well, my heart doesn't condemn me. Now, what's that say? I did. I, I, I heard this person. It was over a, a holiness issue. Well, my heart doesn't condemn me. And I quoted this. Well, your heart is nasty. This book is what tells you what's right. If your heart condemn you not, God is greater. Than the heart. Who can know it, perceive, understand, be acquainted with his own heart and mind? I, the Lord, search the mind. I try the heart every to, ever to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit 
of his doings. Adam and Eve hid themselves among the trees of Eden, but the Lord God found them and judged them severely. Cain tried to hide the murder of Abel, but the Lord God heard Abel's blood crying for vengeance. The Lord Jesus Christ knew every detail of Judah's plotting to betray him for a few lousy pieces of silver, and the fair words of Ananias and Sapphira could not save them from the Lord. Now, you just listen to all these things. That's a good drama you ought to do in Ananias and Sapphira. There you go. So you've already figured that all out, huh? I didn't have that. Though the Pharisees, proud and religious hypocrites who measured themselves by outward appearance, kept most of their hatred bottled up inside, Jesus knew their very thoughts throughout his dealings with them. Now, and we may have secret thoughts unknown to all others, but he knows them perfectly. He does not consider them trifles, for even the thoughts of foolishness is sin, according to Proverbs 24 and 9. Who always wins a debate of one? Ever think about this? When you're debating with yourself, who wins? Huh? Who wins a debate of one? You win the debate of one. You ever debated yourself over an issue? No matter which way you go, you still win. All right? So when you allow a secret fantasy or thought into your mind, you can convince yourself it is allowable or you can get away with it because you're exposing it to no one but yourself. However, God has already seen your imagination and condemned it no matter how highly you think of its ideas. This especially, listen, read my lips, this especially applies to sexual fantasies, especially that you desperately want to hide, especially. And you can read about that in, in Matthew 5, 19 through 23. Oh, no, wait a minute. That's Proverbs. I'm sorry. Matthew 5 also says that, but it's, it's Proverbs 5. If you're ever convinced that someone needs help, or if you are, are ever convicted to do something good and you excuse yourself from doing it, the judge of all the earth saw the wicked discussion in your heart that led to your dereliction of duty. He will repay with divine vengeance, according to Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, James 4, 17. Now, just keep in mind, that is a warning. That's how God warns us. Do not discuss within yourself any approval of sin, either by commission or omission. In other words, let me just put it to you very clearly. Don't lie to yourself. Just don't lie to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. I don't want to help Bob because I don't like him. Okay? And then I can start working on my problem, Bob. Then I need to work on that. So I need to start spending some time with Bob and get to liking him. Not, you know, that way I can help him out. Maybe he might get to learn to like me. You know, I, I, can, I, can, look at, I, I can find fault with anybody in here, and I guarantee you, you can find a lot of them with me. But somewhere along the line, you have to be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell Bob you don't like him. But you need to tell yourself you don't like him. And quit trying to avoid the issue. Because the, the key here is anytime you're honest enough with yourself, then you can start fixing the problem. But when we're not honest with ourselves, we can never fix a problem. It'll never be fixed. So what do we wind up doing? We just take it somewhere else, and we still have the problem. That's always the way it works. You know, the lesson is not difficult. 
But the application is your heart, the world, and the devil want you to forget the omniscience of God. Humble yourself this moment, and that's the right thing to do, and we need to repent of every thought that you have entertained in your heart that is contrary to God and His Word. And if you do not, the judge of heaven and all of earth, who knows your heart better than His, than his, <laughs> than his perfect knowledge of hell and death, will hold you accountable for each one of them, every one of them. We need to learn to tremble before God. You know what? We need to understand that He is omniscient. We need to understand that there is nothing hidden from Him. And you're not accomplishing anything by hiding something from yourself or from someone else. Because God already knows about it. And you know you might have heard that a million times, but somewhere along the line it needs to take root. I, a preacher once said, book I read, I don't remember where it was, but what it was. But he was, he was making a statement concerning uh, the, 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 very, the very thing that I was just talking about, the, the very aspect of how that we have a tendency to, to hide things from, you know, from ourselves and not be honest. And that, that all of a sudden that we can, we can read the Bible, and we can read it, and I've read this verse of Scripture, uh, for instance, over and over and over again. But one day, we realize that we got a problem that this Scripture applies to. And then when we read that Scripture, or you can hear that Scripture preached, or even read from up here, all of a sudden, we think it's, and it is revelation, I'm not taking away from revelation, it becomes revelatory to us. But really what has happened here is it becomes applicable to us. It applies to us. And we've decided I'm tired of being that way. Now I've got to let this apply to me. I've got to do this. You know, you can, have a, uh, you can read a scripture about prayer. And you can read it and you've read it and you've read it for 25 years. But all of a sudden you make a decision. I'm going to be that kind of a prayer warrior. I'm going to be that kind of person. And all of a sudden that scripture takes a new life. And you walk around and you're all, have you ever read this scripture? Well, yeah, we've all read it, but we never really decided to apply it to ourselves. So it's not as revelatory to us as it is to you because you decided that scripture has become alive to me because I'm going to do that scripture. That's, that is the key to everything, is making the decision to allow it to apply to you. Now looking at Proverbs 15:13. Proverbs 15:13 A glad heart makes a cheerful countenance but by sorrow of heart the spirit is broken If if a man holds his hand up here what I'm about to say if you, if you do I'm turning my back and walking out Has any of you ever had a facial Come on, any woman ever had a facial? Bring them up. Not me. I, I just all right. <laughs> put my hand down. <laughs> okay. A smile is the best facial you can get. Charles had a facial? Yeah. <laughs> That's your secret sin. Well, you exposed it to everybody. It's good. Well, you can hear hope for you. <laughs> you know, it, 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 a smile is the best facial. 
A joyful soul enhances your appearance more than anything else. A happy face is a wonderful thing, and it is a result of a peaceful and contented heart. But a troubled heart clouds your face, it saps your features, it saps your body of energy, and it saps you of vitality. It does all of these. Wise men guard their hearts, and they learn to perceive the hearts of others. You know, the Bible speaks of, of discerning by, uh, you know, by reason of use, you can discern between good and evil. And that's not discerning the spirits. It's talking about by reason of use. In other words, by the fact that you, you've opened yourself up, that you can see and understand, and you've been around people, and you've operated in that, that particular way, you can discern between good and evil. It's a different thing in discerning of spirits. But he said, by reason of use. I've done it, I've done it, so I've learned to look at a person and figure it all out. Some people, about as easy to read as, as the Bible there. In bold print. You know, you, some of you wear your feelings right on your face. You can walk in here and you can have a mean look. You want to stay away from that person. You can have a sad look. Still want to stay away from that person. <laughs> you know? And it's for sure you don't want to go up to a sad-looking person and say, how you doing? Never do that. Go up to them, pray for them quickly, and get away. <laughs> All right. No. But it can. Women spend much time, expense, and effort in being visually attractive. Yet a, a warm and sincere smile does more for their appearance than hairdo, makeup, or accessories ever could. Cheerful eyes, a relaxed face, a pleasant smile, contented posture are much more appealing than fine clothing and perfect features. A kind and a happy smile is ten times better than a bored look, angry face, furled brows, or a haughty stare. I've seen all of them from up here. All of those. Your countenance is primarily your facial appearance, but it also includes your, your bearing and your demeanor. It is, it is your face it's your body language combined. And when, you, when you're happy and joyful, your, your countenance reflects this inner condition. And when your soul is burdened under fear, loss, trouble, or worry, your face and body reveal it as well. You can see that in 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 18. And when you're happy and excited, whether by circumstances or choice... You have extra energy, light, and life. And this refreshing carriage is often contagious to those around you. In, in, in the same way, when you are sad and discouraged, you have little energy, power, or resolve. And this depressed appearance drags those down that are around you. Please, get that one. If you love God, don't drag other people down into the pit with you. If you love your neighbor, don't drag them down in the pit with you. You know, the best thing to do with that situation, and it is hard, and I'll be the first one to tell you, but the best thing to do, and I know sometimes, folks, that we need someone to talk to. I understand that, and it's a good ministry to do that, but, boy, take it to God first and try to get lifted a little bit. That is the best way to do it because God can lift you out a lot quicker. Believe me, a lot faster. He can lift you out, and a lot of times when you're done, that person you're talked to, they picked up your burden, and they're walking away with the same problem. That, that, I know they'll bless them. That I think, you know, mourn with them that mourn and rejoice with them that rejoice. I realize that, but that's a different thing than being depressed with them that are depressed. Okay? It's a completely different thing. So when you're, you know, well, let's just look at this. What, what is the lesson here? You know, a, a wise man, the Bible says, will rule his spirit and keep it from, uh, keep it from breaking. 
and, and, if he, and if he is cast down about anything, he will not let it destroy him. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.9. 2 Corinthians 4.9. We are pursued, persecuted, and hard-driven, but not deserted to stand alone. We are struck down to the ground, but never struck out. Oh, that's a good one. You can preach on that. You're one of them baseball nuts. Struck out and destroyed. Yeah. There you Never struck out. And you know what? Now, that was used before there was ever baseball. I wonder if they got struck out from that. Probably did. Struck out. I'm never struck out. Of course, the thing is, if I was playing baseball, I was always struck out. Okay, he will remember the warning to weep without it seriously affecting him. In 1 Corinthians 7.30, look at this. 1 Corinthians 7.30. And those who weep and mourn as though they were not weeping and mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they did not possess anything. Leave that up there a minute. What's that saying right there? Anybody? What's that saying? It's talking about, when he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7.30, is as actually end time things. He said, this is the time that we're living in now. now it's not saying that you, you don't rejoice. It's not saying that you don't weep, that you don't mourn, that you don't buy, and you don't possess. It is as these things should not rule you. You should not be ruled weeping. You should not be ruled with constant rejoicing. I know that's odd. But that's exactly what that's saying. The only thing that rules us is God and His Word. And we walk in that. And we rejoice in that. And there's times when we are down that we still have a spirit. We should be a happy group of people all the time. All right? We should be. I may not be able to dance all the time, but I still should be happy. Because my joy, well, let me rephrase that. I should be joyful because happiness is based on outside circumstances. Rejoicing, or joy rather, is based on my relationship with God. So, so I, I'm joyful all the time. And I should be able to be happy along with that even though I don't have, you know, a lot of money. Even though I don't have a new car or new boat or whatever, I still should be joyful. I've seen people throughout the years, you can always tell when they've gotten more money they know what to do with. They rejoice in church. And then when they don't have, they quit rejoicing. You can tell. But you see, you should be rejoicing and have a joyful spirit and a smile on your face regardless of your circumstances. That is the key for real Christianity, the real key of Christianity. So that's the lesson. You know, he will choose a merry heart for his approach to life, for he is a continual feast, according to Proverbs fifteen fifteen. So what is this lesson? Wise men will consider and discern the souls of others by their outward countenance. True friends are born for adversity, and they will be ready to help in time of grief or need. It is the duty of a Christian in a church to consider when another member might be hurting. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And we earnestly beseech you, brethren, admonish, warn, and seriously advise those who are out of line. Oh, the loafers. The loafers and the disorderly and the unruly. Encourage the timid and the faint-hearted. Help and give your support to the weak souls and be very patient with everybody, always keeping your temper. You need to write that down, the Amplified, put that on your mirror. And when you get up in the morning and say, hi, stupid and stubborn, read that. Okay. How do you get a merry heart? What is a merry heart? How do you get a merry heart? Everything that I have said tonight 
comes down to this one word. How do you get a merry heart? Anybody? Because if you get this right answer, you've answered everything. How do you get a merry heart? Anybody? Is it all based on going on vacation? No? Is it? A merry heart is a choice. Everything I've said is a choice. We choose how we're going to live. We choose what we're going to be. We choose every day how we're going to act or react. We make the choice. The God of heaven expects you to be joyful. Look at Acts 14, verse 17. Yet he did not neglect to leave some witnesses of himself, for he did you good and showed you kindness and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with nourishment and happiness. That's enough. All this rain I hear I don't like, I should be rejoicing. Because we were so destitute for rain back last summer. And I didn't like that either. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so if, if you know him, how can you be anything but content if you know Jesus Christ? Explain that to me. If we know Jesus the way we say we know Jesus, and you have got him in your heart through the infilling of the Holy Ghost the way we have, then how could we be anything but content? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your character or moral disposition be free from love of money, including greed, avarice, lust, cravings for earthly possessions, and be satisfied with your present circumstances and with what you have. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down. Relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Now that's pretty... That's pretty plain. Do you think God has got your well-being in mind? That's, that's pretty good, isn't it? With your heart in the right place, Solomon's priorities make sense. With eternal life as a gift of God and heaven waiting, what can, you, what can get you down? And with a cheerful countenance, you give visual, visual proof with a cheerful countenance, you give visual proof of Christianity's superiority. You understand that? The best thing that you can do to witness, outside of, I know Bible studies are great, but if you want to get in there and get a Bible study, then they need to see a cheerful countenance on you because that lets them know that what you have is superior. I'm not talking about you're superior over them. I'm saying that what we have is superior. And that alone should be enough. I'm out of time because I'm going to quit right now because you've got to get your children. And I've been warned over and over and over again. And I don't want to get in trouble. Okay, now Proverbs 15 and 16, this is your homework. And we'll do it next week. Better is little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. That'll be your homework. You go, I want a two-page written statement on exactly what that means. Everybody got that? Good. Stand to your feet. What else would you stand on your hands? You ever stop and think about some of the statements we make? You ever stop? I do ever so often. I, yeah. Stand to your feet. Yeah. Open your Bible. What else are you going to open? 
Just open your iPhone, iPad, whatever. Okay. All right. God's good to each and every one of us. The loving Savior that takes care of us. Let's raise our hands and just let him know how much we appreciate all that he has been to us, all that he has done for us. He gives us every every good gift, everything that is right, everything that is righteous. We have wonderful opportunities every day. We have the opportunity to make choices that will better ourselves every day of our life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Whoops, turned that off.